Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. I'm your host, Carmen LeBurge, and I'm here with the former host of the program, Peter Kapsner, because he's a good sport and a good conversation partner and willing to subject himself to ongoing uh, challenges like this. Peter, um, good morning, first of all. <laughs> good morning, Carmen. Okay, so here's, here's, you know, this is the stop the presses. I mean, you know, late last night after we had prepped for this segment, uh, I texted you and I said, stop the presses because, <laughs> you know, now the breaking headline news because somebody had too much time on their hands and thought this would be an interesting research project to do, um, we're now worried that the Amish are projected to overtake the current U.S. population in 215 years at their current rate of growth. So um, are you worried at all, uh, 215 years out from now, about an Amish takeover of America? Well, I I don't think I'm going to be alive quite that long, <laughs> but but it is actually pretty interesting. Wait a when second. You look at it. So not you know, a, so so that leads me to the question. So like not supportive of super longevity and the transhumanist movement. See, I feel like I could segue in this conversation from the Amish to the transhumanist in no time flat. Yeah, if if you could somehow lock down my consciousness, I mean, my body's <laughs> going to fail. We're just going to admit that. But if you can, if you could lock down my consciousness for the next two hundred years, I have to admit there's there's a little part of me, Carmen, that's uh, Carmen, that's pretty compelled by the uh, Amish way of life. I mean, just to get out of Dodge completely, get off the grid, and uh, and just sort of live life as if it's the eighteen hundreds. And and it's pretty interesting because they don't use birth control and because they tend to have pretty large families at <laughs> 215 years is a long ways away. But, uh, but you can see, you know, there's a slow, steady walk towards taking over the country. They are on a pace, as we say. <laughs> a um, pace, indeed. <laughs> they, they are on a pace. And so now I will make the connection to the two headlines that you and I are going to talk about when we come back. Um, if you were Amish, the question of whether or not you're going to let your kid play Fortnite uh, and other esports would not be an issue because uh, the answer would be no. And the purity culture conversation that we are now all having about whether or not uh, courtship in, and waiting until you're married to actually um, have uh, have sex, th- this would not be conversations that you'd be having if, if everyone was Amish. And so those conversations are up next, not the Amish part, but those conversations, the conversations about purity culture, Joshua Harris in particular, and esports, particularly Fortnite, up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Peter Kapsner is with us uh, this morning again to talk about some headlines, uh, particularly in relationship to Peter Purity Culture. We've been, uh, we have been, uh, I think, mostly reading, but a lot of us have also been talking about in our private conversations, uh, Joshua Harris, who is a very well-known um, former, now former, not only former evangelical, but former Christian. Uh, he is maybe most well-known um, for the books that he has authored uh, and and then the talks that he has given about 
sexual purity and the importance of it uh, for Christians in terms of waiting until marriage. And so um, he has not only announced that he is divorcing his wife, but he's now also announced that he's departed from the Christian faith. Now, I would say those two things were probably announced in reverse of how they should have been announced. I I think that uh, the destruction of our of our marriages here um, is evidence of the fact that we have departed from uh, if, if we are Christians, we've departed from the intimacy of the marriage we we are intended to have with Christ. So I actually think one departure probably precedes the other um, and the departure from the faith precedes the departure from um, his marriage here. But let's let's do this. Let's just talk about purity. What is it and why does it matter? Yeah, boy, that's a big topic, Carmen. And I'm mindful of that about a month from now, <clears throat> a little less than that, I'll be standing in the classroom again as the fall semester kicks off in my sexuality class. And this absolutely be a topic because Harris's work really has made an impact on the 18 to 22 year olds that I'm with in terms of their sense of purity, in terms of this idea that maybe it does matter to wait. And so when you have such a thought leader and sort of this ambassador for sexual wholeness, then go the direction that he's going. I know there's going to be a significant rippling effect uh, among the young people. And so what will we talk about then when it comes to, so why, to your question, why sexual purity, why wait, especially I, I increasingly hear from my young people that even in their Christian context, they're sort of being invited and encouraged, sometimes by parents, most often by peers, certainly by culture and social media, to um, to go ahead, and, and this is a little bit crass, but this is the language that they use, to sort of test drive another person sexually before you would enter into a commitment of marriage to make sure that you two are compatible for a lifetime in that area, not just in personality, not just in maybe what your goals, dreams, passions are, or the number of kids you want to have, but make sure that as long as you <clears throat> like having uh, this sort of sexual experience at 17, 18, 19, you're going to be set for the lifetime. So, I mean, there's so many directions, Carmen, we could go with that about how that breaks down, obviously. But but one way to distill down why purity, I think, is so important is that in Genesis 2, when it talks about the first reference to becoming one flesh with another person, which is part of the the sexual experience, obviously, the sexual union results in this one flesh relationship. But in the Hebrew of Genesis 2, it says you are increasingly becoming one flesh. And so you're increasingly tying yourself to another person. You are increasingly becoming one and whole with that person. And that is meant for a lifelong covenant. You are meant, just like God said to Israel in the Old Testament, you really only have one God, and it's it's adulterous to then try to enter into union with multiple gods where they have your allegiance. This is very much what the sexual relationship is meant to be, a beautiful covenant between two people where they're increasingly becoming one flesh with one another. And Carmen, if you have a sexual past, and most of my young students do, there's a the good thing is the cross and the tomb are capable of forgiving and redeeming and restoring all things. It's not easy and it's not a magic wand. But if you do have a sexual past, if you've been trying to become one flesh with multiple people, it then is very difficult to enter into a lifelong marriage covenant and now become one flesh with that person yet too. You can't divide your soul in that way among multiple people. And it's something we just don't talk about uh, in in the church very often. Uh, Even Josh Harris um, in his sort of admonition to wait wouldn't have been talking about. So why wait other than maybe, well, don't break God's command, but God has his commands for a reason and they're there for the good of us. And we need to understand that it really wreaks havoc on us 
socially, psychologically, interpersonally, when we try to sort of link ourselves or to join ourselves in increasing fashion with multiple people. You just can't do it. So uh, one of the things Jim and I talk about a lot, and we talked about it a lot prior to getting married, prior to getting married, and we still talk about it a lot. And it's the need for the redeeming of marriage um, in people's minds and certainly in the culture in which we live. Like marriage has been um, it's it's really made a mockery of in the culture today. I mean, I, you know, on on Twitter yeah. this week, you know, there's uh, I mean, if, if people watch British television, which most people don't. But apparently, you know, on the British version of the t- t- of the Today Show, a woman on on live television married her dog like in some sort of legal mm. right. And that just makes a mockery of marriage. It absolutely, you know, and, you know, we could go down the list of it, uh, the issues that are mental health related too that they're clearly not dealing with. But um, there's a there's a mockery of marriage underway. And I think that when as Christians we engage in this conversation, one of the things that we have to acknowledge and recognize is that marriage is not something that we made up, nor something that we can define or redefine, enter into, leave. Like there is a there is a marriage of which human marriage is an image. And the marriage, the real one, is the one between Christ and his church. And it is pure. Like, right? The only people who are going to be found to be members of the bride of Christ, a part of the bride of Christ, and therefore taken into this holy uh, covenant eternal relationship, are that bride is going to be presented pure. Jesus is not taking a defiled bride. That is not happening. Mm. And yeah, so I, I, I just I don't think people make that connection. No, you're you're so right, Carmen. I mean, to get a sense of what we're called to in marriage, you just nailed it. Yeah, marriage is a, is a sort of this earthly picture of the eternal covenant of Christ and His people, and so to manifest what that is, to shine that light in the world, actually pulls people towards Jesus. Uh, marriage, I, I think, part of it is we we tend to reduce marriage down in our in our culture to the idea of I'm going to find a companion for a lifetime so that I'm not lonely, and and I understand all of that. I get it. But marriage is actually part of a much bigger outward facing um, sort of shine the light of God into the world. The, the relationship that you have with your husband, the relationship that you have with your wife is actually an outward one to shine peop- uh, the, the light. So people are compelled to say, wow, look at the love between those two. That must sort of shadow a, a different kind of love that God has for us. And so. We do make a mockery of it, like you said, if a woman is going to marry her dog or, again, if we just reduce this down to I need to find a companion, oh, you know what, I don't actually like this companion anymore, and so I'm going to go find a new companion. None of that shines the kind of light that we're called to. But I have so much sympathy for people, Carmen, in these situations because, you know, we're talking about we're two, three, four generations into the rippling effects of when divorce really began mm-hmm. to run roughshod in our culture. And so kids are growing up without any models. How, how would they know? better in terms of this. When you see what's going on in the church, when you see this Josh Harris, when you see the moral failure, failures of, of leaders, it's a really hard thing. And uh, and I think that there needs to be sort of a weeping and a sympathy for, and then a call back towards wholeness. Well, yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I mean, obviously I'm in a family where I have lots of stepkids and that means that there, um, there are devastated marriages in the past, which have resulted in the marriage I'm now in. Like, right. Yep. So redeeming, redeeming yep. marriage is very, very close to home for me. I want to be yep. redeeming marriage for the children living in the home um, where I now reside as, uh, you know, 
as the wife and mom, right? I mean, I for me, yep. it's it's personal. It's it's intensely intimate. This is um this is real. This is rubber meets the road in our own house. All right, hey, uh, Peter, you and I have to take a quick break. Um, apologies again that we ran over the break the last time that we talked. <clears throat> Um, and, uh, and we'll be back and we're going to talk about esports, and we're going to talk about Fortnite, all of which people who are listening have maybe no idea what it is, but teenagers are making millions of dollars participating <laughs> in esports today and, uh, people need to be in the know. All right. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Hey, welcome back. Um, so, again, a big shout out and thanks to Nat Becker, who's running the board this week, as Paul Perot is on his honeymoon. So just giving thanks to God for marriage and the gift of marriage um, in Paul's life and Jessica's life. And thanks uh, be to God for Nat and his willingness to serve this week, especially when I forget who's coming on when and what we're doing. So uh, thank you, Nat. Really appreciate it. Okay, so, uh, Peter, you and I are going to talk about esports. First of all, um, I think that when we think about sports, particularly when we think about college sports, we don't think about people sitting in front of a screen um, pressing buttons. But that is what we're talking about when we talk about esports. Yeah, it it absolutely is. And I didn't I mean, I knew there was an industry in this, uh, Carmen. I didn't know the extent to which that industry exists until this Fortnite headline hits where this 16 year old wins three million dollars in a tournament. And uh, I began to sort of mine into the numbers. He was the winner of 40 million contestants worldwide. So we're not talking about a couple thousand people playing, which would still be a lot for a tournament. There is 40 million entrants into this tournament. And he emerged the victor. And I sort of began to dig a little bit further. It's a $1.5 billion industry. And uh, the average professional sort of e-gamer makes around $60,000 a year playing the sport. And we can keep going from there. But it is a gigantic industry in terms of what you see people participating in. All right. So I think the fact that there are professional esports um Players, I think that the fact that there are teams that have sponsorships, like there are teams, there are cities have teams. The city of Charlotte built a built an esports stadium. There will be more colleges now have it as an official sport. Um, yep. There, I mean, it just goes on. The layers of this goes go on and on and on. Talk about like, I don't know, varsity esports. Like, how does that work? Do they get do they get jerseys and are there Letterman jackets? Like, you know. Yeah, well, I don't, know. I, I don't think they've gone quite the traditional route yet. But to your point, there's teams all over uh, the country, even all over the world, and and there's coaches of these teams that make somewhere between eighty, you know, eighty to eighty-five thousand, ninety thousand dollars a year. And to give you some perspective, when I put that forty million dollar or forty million person number on the Fortnite contestants, there are eight million high school athletes in the country. So we're talking about five times more than the entire totality of high school athletes in the United States uh, of America are playing Fortnite. And so it is dwarfing everything that is going on in any kind of sports. And uh, I think it is, you mentioned transhumanism at the top of the hour, and, and I think we're a long ways away from that. But it does speak to sort of this integration of screen life, of tech life with human life in an incredible way, if, if you're uh, an e-gamer, you're going to, uh, I'm sure, have signed up for a Twitch account in which people can follow you and you can make tens of thousands of dollars just from your Twitch account and sponsors there as people watch you actually play the game. So if you're playing for six, eight, ten hours a day and an average gamer might play up to 80 hours a week and we can talk about the social impact of that, mm. too. 
but but you will end up with people watching you hours and hours and hours a day. I know young people that that's what they do. They follow their favorite gamers, their sponsorships. I'm, certain, I'm sure there's jerseys, all of that kind of stuff. Okay, so right now there are people rolling their eyes and shaking their heads because they're thinking to themselves, who who out there is letting their kid um, not just play esports for maybe 80 hours a week, but who is letting their kid watch somebody else right. play for 80 hours a week? Like, right, so... Um, I do think that we are talking about screen time. We're talking about content. Fortnite is um, is an interesting example of a game that if you've never seen it, you may think things about it that aren't true. Um, and so, Peter, you're a you're a parent of a of a teenage person. So am I. Um, and Fortnite is obviously something that boys of a certain age are very interested in. Girls as well, but there's in, in terms of my experience, more boys playing. Fortnite than girls. Um, is it your sense? First of all, have you ever seen it? And is it your sense that it is a quote live fire game? Well, yeah, that's a good question. The first time that I saw it was actually a couple years ago. We were in Scotland, and some of my uh, oldest son, Caleb's, his friends were playing it and got introduced to it. And have to say, it's it's a pretty compelling game, pretty interesting to play. It's sort of this Hunger Games meets the big screen, and you want to sort of survive through multiple strategies. Uh, a bit of a first person shooter game, and you get some weapons. It's not horribly like in terms of grotesquely violent, but obviously the way you win the game is that you're the last person who's still alive. So it's going to have some significant violence associated with it. And uh, I was amazed at how um, interest. I mean, they were dialed into this game, Carmen, to the point that they talked about afterwards, they would buy headsets. And when Caleb, my son, came back to the United States and they were still in Scotland, they could time it so that they could sit on headsets, Caleb here in Minnesota and them over in Edinburgh, and they could play at the same time overseas like that. It was just that easy to stay in community. There really is a relational element to this, uh, even though it's quite a violent game as well. Okay, so let's talk about the relational element, because I do think that for those of us who do not feel like our substantive relationships are online, <laughs> this is one yeah. of the really significant differences that's that's taking place generationally. People really do feel like they have friends and they have community online. They do, for sure. I, I you know, in in some ways, it really is a place in which when kids are feeling a bit antisocial or they're a bit wounded, it's almost it feels. And I'm not advocating for it when I say this, Carmen. I'm just saying it feels like a safer place to engage with somebody than in face to face human relationships or large crowds of people. You really can filter. You really can uh, sort of present the best side of yourself or even better yet, you're rallying around um, a common goal like playing Fortnite together. And so it takes a lot of the fear and a lot of the pain out of relationships because it, it kind of sanitizes everything. All right. So this kid, the 16 year old kid who um, won $3 million in his Fortnite championship, like he be he beat out a lot of like serious gamers to do this. Yep. Um, and he's now, you know, he's now, like becoming a media personality, he's clearly going to, um, uh, he's clearly going to, you know, like, well, he is, he's like famous for this now. Um, he plays about six hours a day. Yep. That's and, what and he told the Today Show. Yep. 
and they're talking about burnout among young people now too in their mid to late 20s from playing that they have significant back and wrist issues obviously from playing that often and then they also the, your sort of lifespan for this career is maybe you peak out in your late 20s because your mental acuity has to be working on such sort of pinball tilt overload all the time to be able to deal with all of what you see in front of you and if you experience any kind of decline in mental acuity or your ability to to hit the buttons at exactly the right time you're out i mean think about how competitive that is that's 40 million people we're not talking about a group of teenagers getting around and one winner emerges out of 12 you have to be better than 40 million other people to win at this and and it's a very short flame out lifestyle but boy they can make a lot of money really quickly and it's really compelling because of that to young people who don't always feel like they have a big future or an obvious career path. And so this is something they can sit in their basement and do and uh, and make some money at. It's a really fascinating phenomenon that's worth following in terms of the impact it's going to have. Right. And the reason one of the reasons that Peter and I are talking about it, for those of you that are now you know all up in my grill, that this shouldn't be something that we're talking about. Um, here's the reality. You are going to have a young person who is going to say, um, I can make more money playing video games than I could yep. make uh, going to college. Or when I go to college, I want to be on the video game team. But they're not going to say it that way. They're going to talk about an esports, uh, esports gaming um, team of some kind that's at their college because it is now a varsity sport. Okay, so Peter, you and I are going to leave it right there. I've had a listener who has asked, uh, you know, whether or not you and I are going to talk about the whole Mario Lopez thing. So how about both of us be sure we get up to speed on that and we talk about that next week. That sounds great. I'll <clears throat> look forward to All it, right. Carmen. Great to chat with right. you as always. All right. Thanks, man. All right, we'll be yes. right back. All right, what would the ideal presidential candidate look like from a Christian worldview? Uh, that's the question I'm going to ask Bruce Ashford. He is up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So how is it that you are, as a Christian, evaluating those who are running for the office of president? Have you spent time thinking about what the ideal presidential candidate would look like, what they would say, how they would sound, how they would present themselves? What are, what are your expectations? Um, again, not, not, as, not as a red or blue um, uh, social pundit, but as a Christian, what are you looking for? What would the ideal presidential candidate look like? Uh, Bruce Ashford has answered that question in a piece on LifeWayVoices.com. You can also find Bruce at BruceAshford.net. So, Bruce, first of all, welcome back. Hey, it's good to uh, be on the show with you again, Carmen. It's it's great to be with you. So this just posted yesterday, so I hope I'm not surprising you with uh, with this question, but you wrote it. So I feel like um, <laughs> I feel like you know the answer to my lead question. Um, and let's just talk through what what as christians again as christians specifically what should we be looking for what would our ideal presidential candidate look like yeah you know so i the first thing we always i think want to say here is that we we're not going to get the ideal political leader until christ returns uh when he returns he will install a one world government and one party system and justice will roll down like the waters as the prophet isaiah says um, until then we won't have the ideal political leader, but we do evaluate real world political leaders by, uh, you know, the ideal profile. And I've listed, you know, I've been uh, writing on Christianity and politics for years now, and I've got a few categories. I can list those categories. And then if you want to, if you want me yeah, to elaborate it, on them, 
Happy to do it. Yeah. So um, first, I think character and judgment. You want someone you can trust and uh, who's... Um, whose life is characterized, uh, you know, by wise choices. So character and judgment. Number two, political ideology. Um, you want to know what the person's ideological makeup is. Um, third is policy stances. You want to look at specific stances they've taken. Fourth is governing style. How do they use power? You know, and then fifth is their ultimate commitments. Everybody in the world is religious in one way or another. Everybody describes ultimacy you know, to something. And to the extent that you can judge that in a candidate, that's uh, really important. Okay. I want to, I want to unpack um, the political ideology uh, question, because I'm not sure that everybody knows what you're talking <clears throat> about when you say, I need to be asking the question, what is this person's political ideology? Because, you know, frankly, Bruce, a lot of us have not thought through our own political ideology. And wouldn't yeah, even so, know how yeah. to self-describe. So help us understand when you say, you know, I'm evaluating a candidate's political ideology, what are you talking about? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> so there's about uh, six different uh, modern political ideologies. I'll list them really quickly and I'll give an example. So you've got classical liberalism, conservatism, progressivism, libertarianism, nationalism, and socialism. Now, every ideology, every ism is going to tend to elevate some aspect of God's creation to the level of God. In other words, they're going to make a God out of something that's not a God. Classical liberalism and libertarianism tend to elevate individual liberty, individual autonomy to the level of a God. Conservatism tends to elevate cultural heritage to the level of a God. Progressivism is the opposite of conservatism, and it tends to elevate social change to the level of a god. Nationalism elevates the nation or elevates an ethnic group within the nation uh, to the level of ultimacy. And then socialism elevates material equality to the level of ultimate. And so, I, you know, um, a Christian is usually not going to buy wholesale into any ideology because ideologies tend to be idolatrous. And um, I've written on my website. Website is bruceashford.net. I've got individual articles on each of these ideologies. Um, you know, the word conservatism is an interesting word because a lot of people listening to a Christian radio show would say, hey, I'm a conservative. I'd say that. But in the technical sense of the word conservative politically as a political ideology, um, it doesn't conservatism looks wildly different depending on which country you live in. And it's not in and of itself, you know, drawn from Scripture. So, um, well, and I think one of the things I really appreciate, and again, I'm, I'm so glad that you highlighted that you have individual articles about each one of these. And again, that's at bruceashford.net. All of this, by the way, is aggregated beautifully by Bruce in a piece entitled The Ideal Presidential Candidate, which is posted at lifewayvoices.com today. Um, what I really appreciate, Bruce, in terms of unpacking each one of these is I can then say, hey, there are some things about which I, I think it classically liberally like i i have some classical liberal thoughts in terms of um you know how free i think people should be to express their opinions right. let's say but i also um am you know i would be conservative in in terms of some things and yes More i uh, yeah you see, right exactly so that's what i really appreciate like there are there are ways that i can um I can better understand myself, and then I can also be able to say it's really difficult for me to say I am, uh, I am, ex I exactly fit in one of these boxes. 
which then gives me the grace to be able to say, those people up there on that stage, they don't precisely fit in any one of these boxes either, but they are represented, they are more representative of one ism than yes. another. Is that fair yes, to say? That, yeah, that's exactly right. And all the isms aren't equal. I think the, the, the ones that scare me the most are ethno-nationalism. It's a type of nationalism that elevates one race above the others. And uh, socialism. I think socialism is a revolutionary um, uh, ideology that wants to clear the deck socially, wants to destroy a lot of things, break a lot of things, knock a lot of things down, because it thinks that if you can change the system, you can build a basically a utopia. You can fix things now. And that's a, I think that's a big, big problem. The Bible teaches us that we actually we, we can't fix things now. I mean, we can we can work to make them better, but uh, I mean, I, and I think we've seen historically that when you attempt a social revolution, not a political revolution, but a social revolution, things usually go badly. French Revolution, Marxist Revolution, the USSR, and so forth come to mind. It's so interesting because that totally circles back around to a conversation I had with Ben Johnson at the outset of the hour. I mean, like, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting how so many of our conversations today, when we are talking about what is being talked about on the political stage, we end up having conversations that you know, are about evaluating what has been tried in the 20th century in particular um, around the globe and just how bad the socialist experiment has been uh, in other places uh, around the world and why we don't want to really try it here. Um, OK, um, when we come back, Bruce, we're going to pivot because okay. what I really invited you on today to talk about was defending religious liberty in the secular age, which is a piece you wrote um uh, in July and is posted at bruceashford.net. So can we take a break and we come back, you can walk us through what it looks like. And, and here's the way I want to pose it. I have a non-Christian neighbor. I have a secular neighbor. I want to be able to defend religious liberty to my secular neighbor who thinks that hmm. as a Christian, I'm like a threat to them. So can we have it sort yeah, of in that great. spirit? Okay, super. I'll be right back with Bruce Ashford. You can check out what we're talking about at bruceashford.net. Bruce Ashford is here. He serves as the provost and professor of theology and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of a number of really good books, Every Square Inch, An Introduction to Cultural Engagement for Christians, One Nation Under God, A Christian Hope for American Politics. Um, I, I loved the approach that you took, Bruce, in Letters to an American Christian, um, and that's kind of the conversational approach that uh, you know we encourage here every single day in terms of how we as Christians are going to engage uh, our neighbors who are yeah. largely secularists. And so help me as, you know, as a neighbor, defend religious liberty in a secular age. Yeah, good question. So I think I want to do two things. I want to define what religious liberty is and give an initial articulation of, of uh, why everyone should want it. And then number two, I want to place it within a broader sort of architecture of society, relate religious liberty to our life as a whole in, in, our, in our nation. So to begin with, what, you know, what is um, religious liberty? Religious liberty is the right for a, uh, that a person has to align their life with their deepest convictions and to do so openly, freely, and without fear. And so religious liberty, if you will, applies to everyone, including people who are not religious, people who, who you know, who are not part of a formal religion. The Bible teaches that everybody's a worshiper. Everybody ascribes ultimacy to something. There's something in life that is number one for every person, and whatever that thing is, is our God. 
So, you know, if, if, if somebody's God is uh, sex or money or power, you know, um, we want them to be able to align their life with that, uh, even if we disagree with it, and do so openly, freely, and without fear. There are some limits to religious liberty. You know, if you're <clears throat> if the thing you ascribe ultimacy to is going to cause you to kill somebody else or harm somebody else, there are some limits. Um, but we want people to live out what they, what they uh, think is right. It's part and parcel of a law-governed democracy. It's the first freedom. If that freedom falls, all the other freedoms fall. The other freedoms are weaker, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and, uh, and so forth. Uh, freedom of religion is deeper. It's more robust. It strikes at the heart of who individuals are. And once that falls or once it gets restricted, all the other freedoms fall or are restricted themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. <clears throat> I'm taking notes because as soon as you say that it's the first freedom, like my mind – um, jumps to headlines in the country related to, let's say, the State Department forming, uh, you know, a task force or whatever it's going to be on the subject of unalienable rights. And then that leads to this conversation about a hierarchy of rights. And if something is first, if something is foundational, then, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of a hierarchy, like we can't let that one go um it, because right. it's it, it, we can't let we just literally we can't let that one go and so i do think that when we're ha- when you and i are having conversations that may sound academic in reality all of this is easily and and quickly applicable if we allow our mind to roam around the headlines and we say to ourselves oh that yeah. person even if they say they're non-religious they have a god they are worshiping and they are committed to something. There is something under this passion, this fervent passion they have for abortion, or there's something under this fervent passion they have for whatever it is. So I think it's helpful for you and I um, to, to say that out loud and to say these these academic um, principles that we are applying to the subject matter are essential uh, in terms of our Christian ability to have conversations happening in the culture right now. They are, you know, an example, and I do in a moment want to get to the kind of architecture of society, but you, you made yeah. such an inter- interesting point. I mean, this stuff sounds academic sometimes, but it's street level. It, it affects us, you know, on Main Street. A great example is there was a document published called Peaceful Coexistence uh, about four years ago by the United States uh, Commission on Civil Rights. And in that document, the majority, there was a vote on, of the of the commission and there were some dissenters, but the majority uh, basically voted and said that we need to elevate non-discrimination laws above religious liberty. Now, mm-hmm. religious liberty is enshrined in our Constitution. Non-discrimination is not. And so that says something in and of itself. But what was more interesting is that Martin Castro, who is the chairman of uh, that commission, said in, in print in the document that religious liberty was just a veil for bigotry and hatred. And so there, you know, there are a number of people in our country, and they probably see some real bigotry and hatred that maybe that passes under the the, you know, phrase religious liberty. There, we there's some hateful people who defend their hatred, you, you know, by religion. But he 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 dismissed religious liberty as a as a mask, like a camouflage for hatred and bigotry. And there, there's no, nothing to be further from the truth. And there's a movement on the left to um, reduce religious liberty to just the freedom of worship. And what they mean by mm-hmm. that is you're free to go to church and whisper about God you know, in the corner of your house, but you're not free to act on what you believe in the public square. You know? you're, you're not mm-hmm. f- free to say, you know what, 
I'm happy to bake a cake for for uh, a gay person in the community, no problem at all. But I, I don't want to bake a cake for a wedding ceremony because that to 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 do that for, for a gay wedding is to to say that you think there is such a thing as a gay wedding. And yeah, you're compelling. We know you're that, compelling me to say something that I am not willing to say based on my beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You Bruce, know, the, the I don't broader... want I don't I know I don't want you and I to run out of time to get to your I know there are four points here. There's no poem, but I know there's four points. So um I don't want to miss those. Um and I don't wanna I don't want to run out of time. So let me allow you to give the list and then um okay. and then we'll see yeah. what we got time to circle back to. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you know, so so the, the, I wanted to give a case study today. I'll give it uh, just very quickly, and that is how can we protect children in a secular age? You know, mm. um uh, because I think parental rights are something pretty important that, you know, if, uh, if, if a child comes to us and says, I'd like to be transgender and they're five years old and they learn this at kindergarten, a parent has the right to say, you know, you're, you're a, a little boy and you're not going to live as a little girl. And, and th- we've had some case studies here in the States and also in Europe where parents' rights have been taken away over transgender issue or, or maybe over a uh, homosexual lifestyle. I think there's four things we need to, need to do. The first thing we need to do is to make a compelling argument that the family is the most basic institution in society. Um, there are all kinds of psychotherapy, sociology, medical, legal arguments that a child needs a family, and the best family, if possible, optimally, is a mother and a father and their children. So we need to make that argument. Number two, we need to defend religious liberty. Number three, we need to promote a vision for societal pluriformity. That's a huge word. What it basically means is that there are multiple different spheres of society, and each of these spheres need to basically swim in their own lane. Family, church, state, education, each serve a unique purpose, but none of them should be allowed to take over the other spheres. And then finally, I, I think we need to, when, when a parent's religious liberty is being threatened, when a parent is being told, you know what, you can't align your children's lives with your own conviction. We're going to take your children and give them to the grandparents. Or we're going to take your children and give them to a foster home. We need to show the negative effects that will flow from the family being weakened in that way. And there's just all kinds of evidence, uh, uh, medical, sociological, psychotherapeutic, philosophical, theological, legal, uh, that, that a child needs the family. We need to let uh, the family have, ha, you know, have that integrity. There, there are instances where the state should step in and take a child out of the home, sexual abuse, physical abuse, those two things. But other than that, for better or for worse, parents need to be able to educate their children. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, you have to give us that giant word one more time. It started with societal, and then yes. I kind of ran. I didn't so, know. Could... Yeah, societal pluriformity. I mean, the one minute pluriformity, summary. pluriformity, pluriformity. You... Plur... Yeah. Okay, go ahead. I'm writing. Do it. we have sixty seconds? Yeah, go, man, go talk. Yeah, yep. so societal pluriformity is just the belief that listen, God, just like God created different kinds of animals, He actually created different kinds of culture, and each kind of culture, whether it's marriage and family, um, uh, government art, science, you know, the, all of these things, each kind of culture has a reason for being, a unique reason for being, but also has limits to its jurisdiction. And so the government exists for a, a good reason, and God gives the government, he charges them with something to do, which is to bring justice. Um, but 
there's also limits to the jurisdiction of each sphere. And the government has limits to its jurisdiction, and it ought to keep its tentacles out of every other sphere of our life as much as possible. And, All right, um, and when you start talking about spheres, right, then we're, we're talking about uh, Kuiper, which is one of my favorites. And then we talk yeah. about every square inch, and now yeah. we're right back to a book you wrote. Okay, Bruce, you and I have to leave it right there. You guys got to go to bruceashford.net. We're running this to the very end of the hour. Thank you so much for being with us today on Mornings with Carmen. You can check out what we're doing at myfaithradio.com. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.